Welcome back to the Stronger by Science Fireside Chat series. I am your host, Greg Knuckles, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Eric Trexler. Eric, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Uh, you know what? Honestly, not doing my best today. Just uh, just putting it out there for the listeners, but it is what it is, and uh, you know, gonna gonna soldier through anyways. Well, we appreciate it. Uh, so as I mentioned on, on the last episode, uh, it was somewhat up in the air about whether this would be the last fireside chat before, um, you know, more sciencey and content heavy episodes came out or whether this would be the first sciencey content heavy episode back. Um, anyway, it's, it's going to be one more fireside chat. Normal episodes will resume as normal next week. Uh, but for today, just just some more uh, lighthearted, off-topic content, and uh, I, I hope you enjoy it. Um, just as a bit of a show note, uh, something to potentially put on your calendar is that on September 16th, we are going to be recording a live bonus episode of the podcast. Um so it's going to be sort of like the the macro factor launch party that we did a year ago. Uh, it's going to be to celebrate the anniversary. Um, we're going to be primarily wanting to address macro factor related questions if you use the app. Uh, but if you're there in chat and you're asking about other stuff, we will definitely make a point of uh, getting to questions about other topics as well. So uh, put that on, on your calendar, September 16th. We're thinking for now it will probably be uh, around 8 p.m. Eastern. Um, so the the best place to get notified about that is if you're listening to this on a podcasting app in particular, uh, go to the Stronger by Science YouTube channel, uh, subscribe, ring the bell, etc. Uh, so you can get notifications for when that's scheduled and when it goes live. Sounds good. All right, yeah, let's uh, let's hop into it uh, with questions. So from the Facebook group, Andrea Farmer uh, asks, what are some things that seem difficult to cook or bake, uh, but is actually pretty easy and worth trying? So as the, as the cook uh, here, here on the Stronger by Science Fireside Chats, I figure you should lead it off. Okay, cool. Yeah, at first I was getting a little defensive there. Uh, yeah, as our resident chef, uh, I want to answer this a little bit differently. Um, obviously, anything that requires any skill or effort uh, to cook, it's really not within my uh, realm of expertise. I focus on doing stuff that is extremely easy, easy to do. Uh, and, you know, I I've talked about my perspectives on food before. I don't go for like really uh, elaborate meals or very good tasting meals. I try to get right in the middle, like on that state, that scale of hedonic enjoyment from one to 10. In, in the middle of not difficult to make and also not tasting good, just kind of like the, the Venn diagram of those two things. No, what I try to do is make it a 10 out of 10 in terms of easiness. And then for flavor, like maybe a four out of 10. Fair enough. If I can get into that sweet spot, I'm happy. Um, now, if the easiness level starts to drift down to nine or God forbid, as low as something like eight, then I'm completely out. I'm not going to do it. So 
I want to answer a slightly different question. I'm sure you'll have a good answer to the actual question, but um, I want to talk about vegan and vegetarian meal options because one of the things I noticed, like I, I guess uh, since I've mentioned it uh, on the show and I talk about it a little bit in the Facebook communities and stuff like that, I've seen a lot of conversation about vegan and vegetarian diets and some people who are like, you know, I've thought about you know, making the switch, or I've thought about maybe, you know, for part of the week, ha- having days where, where I don't eat any meat products. But like, as we all know, it's almost impossible, you have to be an excellent cook, and it's prohibitively expensive. Uh, and those things, to me, just don't really seem accurate. Um, and like, I'm not out here trying to convert anyone to any particular way of eating. But like, I, I noticed that when I switched to uh, a vegetarian diet, my meal preparation did not get any more difficult at all. Um, it actually got a, a tiny bit easier, if that's even possible. Uh, and my my cost per meal actually went down. So uh, I wanted to share uh, a really, really easy dinner that I make that is like super easy, super cheap, and keeps me happy. So I've been eating this a lot lately, but what I do is I just get frozen vegetables, spread them on a, a baking sheet. I put aluminum foil on the sheet so that I don't have to wash it after. Uh, put those in at like 350, get some edible, which is what you're going for. Uh, get the rice cooker going with white rice. And uh, they'll finish about 30 minutes later. Pop open a can of garbanzo beans, also known as chickpeas. Uh, mix it all together. Put on some teriyaki sauce, some soy sauce. And it's great. And and the way I got to this meal was I basically started with like an elaborate tofu based stir fry. And I just started eliminating all the things that were even remotely challenging or labor intensive. And all of a sudden, you know, you end up with a meal like this and you're like, hey, it's great. And it's, uh, you know, relatively low energy density. You, You can increase the energy density just by just, you know, increasing the amount of rice that you're throwing in there. Um, yeah, easy to make vegetarian, super cheap. And, uh, minimal cleanup, which is huge. Another thing we've talked a little bit about uh, in mass, and and I think we've mentioned on the podcast, uh, food texture and and how that can influence uh, rate of eating, satiety, things of that nature. I actually, I, like I said, I used to make this with tofu and then I got too lazy to cube the tofu, Mm -hmm. which is just, it's like five minutes for God's sakes. I don't, who has the time? So I said, I'm just going to open a can of beans and put it in. When I switched from tofu to the chickpeas, I noticed that the satiety that I was experiencing in the meal actually did appreciably increase. And I think the texture has part of it's probably flavor, mm-hmm. part of it's te- texture. But you can you can kind of mix and match that kind of main protein ingredient and, and find that perfect level of satiety that you're looking for. Sweet. Sounds good. Yeah. What do you got? Yeah, so I, I have a few. Um, one I mentioned on the podcast before, and that is risotto. For whatever reason, people think risotto is very fancy and hard to make. Uh, it's not. It, it's just rice that you just stir instead of leave alone. Um, that causes it to release more of the starch. That's what kind of thickens the whole dish up. And then, I mean, beyond that, it's it's rice with just like some some form of like flavoring in it. Generally, there will be... Uh, just like some aromatics that you cook beforehand that you stir into the rice. And then, uh, before it's quite done, you just finish it with some butter and cheese. Easiest thing in the world. It's just rice that, that you stir the whole time. Um, I, I think a lot of people are intimidated by making bread just in general. Um, 
either they think that the dough is going to be very sticky and hard to handle, or they're concerned that you know they're they're not going to time everything 100% perfectly and like their bread may be slightly overproofed or underproofed and the thing is it is i think somewhat difficult to get really really good at making bread uh but the thing about bread is that homemade bread is always going to taste good uh so you can th- there is a very wide latitude for being able to screw it up while you're learning how to make it and still have a very delicious product at the end. And it's also something that you can ease into if if any of these things intimidate you. So especially if if you're uh concerned about like being able to handle the dough well, if it's going to be too sticky. The thing about dough is that the the stickiness is pretty proportional to how wet it is. So just start with with drier doughs to begin with. And that's not going to give you like super airy bread with like large bubbles like a like a rustic hearth loaf or whatever but that's fine like you you can start with something easier and then as you just get more and more comfortable handing handling dough you can work up to higher and higher hydration doughs um so it's it's something that if you did just jump straight into the deep end it might be pretty challenging but it's something where you can start with with very easy breads and then just work to more and more challenging breads over time. So, you know, there there is kind of that progression and entry level breads are are quite easy to make. Um something else that I think intimidates people is making uh caramel or caramel at home, however you pronounce it. Uh and I think the thing that concerns folks the most is that as they're trying to caramelize their sugar, that it's going to uh, crystallize on them and isn't going to make a nice smooth caramel. Uh, there are two things, eh, three things you can do to help with that. So ultimately, um, ultimately, like sugar starting to crystallize has a lot to do with how much agitation occurs and just if there are intact sugar granules because like it's it's a crystal it's like a crystalline structure sugar is and the way crystals work is basically if there is a seed crystal like further crystals can just kind of propagate from there um so that's that's what you're concerned about uh and so in generally like there might be like a couple sugar crystals somewhere in your pan uh, but like I said, agitation matters a lot too. So if you're just constantly like mixing or agitating the mixture a lot, that's just going to put more molecules in contact with each other. So if if there is that crystal in there, things spread quicker. So there are a few things you can do to make caramel very easy and nearly foolproof. One is uh, just to add extra water to get it going. So, you know, I- instead of like, I think a lot of caramel recipes i've seen online say like i'll start with like a cup of sugar and maybe like a tablespoon of water just to get everything going you can totally do that but if you're not in a rush you could add like a quarter cup of water a half cup of water uh, and basically make simple syrup to begin with and then just boil it down from there it will take longer because before the sugar will start caramelizing you need to drive most of that water off but if you're not in a rush that's totally fine Uh, Also, if you're not in a rush, which if you're not experienced making caramel, you shouldn't be like you should uh, take your time and, and, uh, you know, do it well instead of trying to do it quickly. Uh, But just turn the heat down 
uh, like to low or medium low, like basically the lowest heat that will boil water instead of trying to keep the heat really high. So one that's going to give you a longer timing window for when you stop the, like when you can stop the caramel without burning it. Um, but it's also just going to agitate the mixture less because you don't have as intense of bubbling. So like if a crystal, uh, like if crystallization starts, it won't spread as much or as quickly. Uh, and then the last one, and like this is this is basically a hack. Like I I don't know how long it took me to learn this little tip. Uh, but once I learned it, I was like, oh, never mind. I, I wish I would have known this the whole time. Makes it almost foolproof. Uh, whatever whatever pot you use, try to use a relatively like skinny pot. So if if there's one that's like skinny and tall, uh, that's fine. If you don't have like a specific pot for caramel making, which I don't, uh, you can just use a normal pot. But you know, if you're going to be going with like a cup of sugar, don't use like a 12 inch frying pan or something like that. You want you want the smallest amount of uh, like circumference of the thing you're making, uh, the thing you're using as possible like that uh, reduces kind of the surface area along the sides for crystals to start forming. And then here's the here's like kind of the hack. Just leave the lid on. So like that does a couple things for you. Um, until most of the water gets driven off, uh, it's going to keep the humidity up inside the pot. I said a couple things. It does one thing for you, but it's a very important thing. It keeps the humidity up inside of the pot. And if a crystal, like if crystallization is going to start in your caramel, it's generally because like you got your sugar mixer, you got your sugar mixture going, it's boiling, it's simmering along, whatever. Some of it splashes onto the walls of the pan, and then all of the water is driven off of this very sugary water droplet that went on the side of the pan. And now you have a little sugar crystal, and if other sugar comes in contact with it, it'll start crystallizing. Not good. So just by leaving the lid on, like water will still evaporate out. Like there will be enough steam pressure in, in inside the pot that that water will get driven off but it keeps the humidity high enough within the pot itself that those uh those droplets that splatter onto the side of the pot won't completely dry out and crystallize like it'll just flow back down into the rest of the mixture much more easily um so yeah just add a little extra water to start with keep the heat low and until most of the water is gone and the sugar starts changing color just leave the lid on the pot, um, and that that's like 90% of it, and it makes it so much easier, uh, and like I said, not completely foolproof, but nearly foolproof. And then the last one, like this, this does stretch the definition of pretty easy, but worth trying, so th this last one does still take some effort, but I, I put it on here because I think people find it unnecessarily intimidating, and that is croissants, uh, which... No, I'm I'm not even gonna try to to pronounce it the proper French way. I get I get made fun of every time I try to do that. Uh, but anyway, croissants, like it is pretty time and labor intensive. Uh, but I think people get I, I think people get intimidated by it because they're concerned, like oh, like what if what if I accidentally rip the dough, or what if the lamination doesn't go perfectly. 
Or, you know, what if I don't leave the dough in the fridge quite long enough and the butter stays a little bit too soft and some of it gets worked into the dough? What if I leave it in the fridge too hard between folds and the, and the butter gets too hard and it's hard to roll out? Uh, so all of those things will happen if you've never made croissants before. And the good thing is it doesn't matter. Uh, if, you're, if you're an amateur baker, no one is expecting your croissants to come out looking like the perfect croissants that they might get at a, at a professional bakery. Like they're, they're simply not expecting that level of aesthetic perfection. And uh, in terms of just generally how the product will turn out, like will it, will it poof correctly? Will it have the right texture? It will. Uh, it, it pretty much always will. Unless you just really, really screw something up. So if you start with like half melted butter, like yeah, things are probably going to go awry. Um, but like I've I've accidentally like ripped the dough when I was making croissants before. Like I'd, I'd turn it over like as I was rolling it and be like, oh no, there's butter smeared on my countertop. Like it's leaking out. It's not going to get a good puff. It's totally fine. Um, I've got the butter too hard before and like the sheet of butter itself cracked as I was attempting to roll it out and I was like oh no it's going to be uneven whatever still totally fine thing is when you put that much butter in dough you're not ever going to work all of it into the dough there's still going to be enough layers that you get that puff and that crunch and that texture that you expect from croissants it's going to taste like dough and butter which is one delicious and two exactly what croissants taste like um and so essentially like it it is labor intensive and and quite difficult to make perfect croissants but y- you can screw croissants up to a nearly infinite degree and l- like when you put them in the oven you're like oh no this is terrible this is a disaster and then just magically they come out of the oven and they're great uh so you know it's it is very hard to get perfectly, but it's also incredibly hard to screw up to like an unredeemable degree. So if if uh, puff pastry in general or laminated doughs intimidate you, uh, they shouldn't. Like you, you will screw them up, uh, anticipate that. But even when you screw them up, it, it's still going to turn out tasting good, looking good, um, and and generally being a delicious confection. You know, we're very different people, Greg. When when I think of a starch, I don't say, what kind of special type of bread or dough can I make today? I'm like, how long does my rice cooker take? That, that's the only <laughs> question. Rice cookers, though, without without rice cookers, um, which were very affordable, by the way. I think my rice cooker was like $12 or something. Nice. I think I'd be dead. I, I don't think I would be able to feed myself without it. I mean, to be clear, like all of the things I just listed are things that I, I never, and I don't think have ever made for myself. Yeah. Uh, it's just cooking for other people. Yeah. For, for myself, for starch purposes, I do also like almost exclusively eat rice. It's very easy and delicious. Yeah. I think I've had all of these things that you mentioned. Um, and all of the ones I remember have been fantastic. Yeah. So, all right. Well, thanks, uh, man. Yeah, so moving on, we've talked about some good dishes. How about some terrible dishes? Yeah, I'll I'll start with this. Um, so for me, I I've made a lot of truly abominable ramen, um, like like instant ramen, 
And uh, this was all when I was very young. So I, I, I think I was always interested in cooking, but um, yeah, my, I, I like, I don't want to say like my parents never cooked for me or, or anything like that. Uh, but there wasn't that much kind of like direct tutelage from my parents to me about how they, to didn't, they didn't throw you the apron and say, come on, stand next to the stove. I mean, they, they did from time to time, but it, it was mostly like for desserts. Like if, yeah. you know, if, if we were making like a, a box cake mix or something, um, you know, my, my mom would have my brother and I come into the kitchen and be like, oh, we need two eggs. Can you grab two eggs? Like, oh, we need to mix this for five minutes. Can you use the mixer or whatever? Um, but, you know, it, she wouldn't say like, "Ooh, we're going to, uh, you know, do, do a reverse sear on some steaks. So like, here's how you check the temperature of the pan. Like, here's how long you cook. Each- like, there, there wasn't too much of that. Yeah. Um, but I, I did always think cooking was, was interesting and I wanted to be good at it. Uh, and we always had a lot of instant ramen on hand in part because it's just delicious. And in part, because it's very cheap. Um, back in the day, it was like 10 cents per package, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the Marichan, the top ramen, you could sometimes get 20 for a dollar. Whoa. I I mean, I, I don't know. Like you, you grew up in the big city, uh, (laughs) but out, out in the country where I lived, you, you could get. When it went on sale, you could get ramen for five cents a pack. It was yeah. it was nice. Um, so when I was trying to learn how just like flavors and seasonings worked, uh, so th- this was like early high school, like 15, 16. Um, what I would do for breakfast every morning is I would just make uh, like a pot of instant ramen, not use the flavor, the flavoring packet uh, and just try to season it myself to you know, just try to figure out what everything tasted like, how everything worked. And I would say 40% of them were just absolutely abominable. Uh, basically inedible, but but I ate them anyway. Um, and really, the, the main thing I learned from that whole process is just the appropriate amount of salt to use in things. Because uh, really, I mean, that's that's where things really go awry. Like mm-hmm. you can you can save most dishes unless you either get them just way too some strong flavor. So if something is tremendously too spicy, like the the saying uh the solution to pollution is dilution, like that that's true but it's also finite. You know, if you put uh five times as much salt as you should in a pot of ramen, you can dilute that with five times as much water, but like now it's not really ramen anymore. It's like yeah. a, a thermos of salt water with like some noodles floating around in it. Uh, same thing if something's like way, way too spicy. Like, yeah, you can dilute it, but again, you're basically, you're, you might be going from making a soup to just making water with some yeah. stuff floating around in it. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, as, as far as most, at least like savory foods go, um, if you don't massively undersalt it or you don't massively oversalt it or you don't add like way too much of any one particular flavor. So I, I love garlic, uh, but I, I've, I made a lot of ramen where I added way too much garlic powder uh, to the point where even I was like, damn, that's too much garlic. Yeah. Um, so unless you find yourself in a situation like that where you just add way, way too much of something, but particularly salt. Um, you can generally save it and, and salvage something that's pretty decent. 
So yeah, the I, I think the main lesson I learned there was just how to salt things appropriately. But until I learned that lesson, I made I made some just dog shit ramen. Yeah, and I should mention we're responding to a question by Kevin Rockwood. He asked, "What's the worst dish we ever made?" Um, oh, I'm I have notifications disrupting the recording. Extremely unprofessional. Um, I hope I will get invited back, but it's hard to say on this particular uh, fireside chat series. Um, but anyway, yeah. So for me, there's some dishes that were <laughs> one was just a mistake that was awful. The other was just a, a habitual issue I have with cooking. Um, so first of all, uh, one time when I was like dreamer balking in college, uh, I wasn't paying attention and you know i was just like constantly eating like you've done a dreamer bulk right where you're just like i'm gonna eat as much as i possibly can yeah that was like the first 25 years of my life you you just feel sick you're not really paying attention when you're putting the meals together you're like oh here we are eating again Mm -hmm. so i made some spaghetti noodles and i was at that time shopping at costco (laughs) it's like i needed a million calories a day uh to try to gain you know, four pounds a day, this ridiculous uh, mm-hmm. bulk I was doing. So everything in my life was Kirkland brand, right? Yeah. Uh, my ketchup, my mustard, my socks, my jeans, everything in my life was Kirkland brand. So I, I reach into the refrigerator, Kirkland brand, red stuff, got it. Thought it was the spaghetti sauce. It was the salsa. Mm-hmm. But at this point, I was too broke and too committed to bulking to throw it out. And so I ate spaghetti with salsa instead of uh, spaghetti sauce, and it was absolutely disgusting. I, I don't know how I managed to stomach it, but it was terrible. I, I think you're saving face right now. You you say you didn't do that on purpose, but I, as a as a proprietor of Cincinnati Chili, I, I know that about you. <laughs> I think you looked at the spaghetti noodles and said... I'm about to do something here. Cincinnati tacos. Yeah, you, you can do anything. Just start with <laughs> spaghetti noodles and put put whatever you want on it. Uh, now, Cincinnati-style chili is fantastic. It really is. Um, but but it's, it's an acquired taste. It, it's always curious to me, though, as someone who grew up there, mm-hmm. when you see people absolutely revolted by it, and you're like, this is just a normal thing that, that I grew up with. Like, it, it, yeah. it seems super normal. Um. Now, on to like actual terrible dishes I've made. To me, it always seems to be an issue of texture. And a big thing that, that comes back to haunt me frequently is just too much moisture. Mm-hmm. And I know why. It's because I'm very lazy, right? So all the steps you would normally take to say, you know what? I need to dry this out a little bit or I need to crisp it up a little bit. Yeah. that's Those are all extra steps. That's effort, right? So like for me, if I'm making some big, th- like the, the one that comes to mind is a quiche that I tried to make. And I'm thinking, okay, veggies, eggs, what could go wrong? But I'm so, yeah, I'm really, really lazy. So I, I always get the um, uh, the frozen vegetables. Oh yeah, that are pre you know, pre washed, pre chopped. They're sitting there in the freezer. When you need to use them, you get them out. And honestly, frozen vegetables are fantastic. They they retain their nutrients really well. They're very convenient, very affordable, and you don't have to worry about spoilage yeah. because like. I'm sure everyone has been in that situation where you're walking through the grocery store and in your mind, you're the healthiest person you've ever met, right? And you're like, oh, I'm going to tear through this fresh produce almost instantly when I get home. And then four days later, it's still in the refrigerator. And you're like, what am I going to do with 11 pounds of carrots? Yeah. You know, 
So I like that it takes that pressure off of you. Just leave it in the, in the freezer. It's there when you need it. Yeah, you, you can still never consume vegetables, but you're not creating food waste in the process. Exactly. Yeah. It, it's still aspirational. <laughs> like I, I own vegetables, yeah, whether or yeah. not I eat them. It's, it's an investment, basically. Um, but anyway, so I'm like, yeah, I'll make a quiche. I throw all this crap in there. It was absolutely disgusting. Like, there's just way too much moisture in all the vegetables. You're supposed to get them fresh and crisp and chop them up yourself. Uh, so for me, that's like a constant issue. And uh, I, I mentioned Tim Heidecker, who makes On Cinema at the Cinema uh, mm -hmm. last episode. He also made like a series of five cooking shows on YouTube that were hilarious because uh, he would always mess up the, the moisture level of the dish. Mm -hmm. And the whole series was basically framed as him trying to make money from a mustard sponsor. Uh. <laughs> and so he would put a bunch of mustard in and it'd be too thick. And then he'd just put water in the mustard bottle and shake it up and try to like thin it out a little bit. And then it'd yeah. be too thin. He would just always go back and forth. And that just hit a little bit. I like my comedy to hit close to home, but that was too much. Mm -hmm. that, that, that made me, uh, it was just too close for me. But yeah, with cooking, I, I've had so many bad dishes that I just packed it up and said, Let's move on. Yeah, that's that's fair. All right. Uh, Corinne asks, uh, what is the worst thing you've ever smelled? Do you want to do you want to lead off on this one? Yeah, I'll go quickly here so we can get through a bunch of, of, of questions. The, the, this this is a great pivot from food topics. If yeah, if anything up to this point was at all appetizing to, to the listener, uh, just just get that out of your head. Right. Well, now. we went we went good food, bad food bad smell we're just kind of shifting to a different sense here um it, it's funny i made my list and didn't really think about it too too closely and then i looked at it again today and i said this is just my life at the age of 17 <laughs> uh which is really funny like yeah. so the first things i wrote down that came to, came to mind one was wrestling knee pads and so a lot of lifters are going to be able to identify with that because it's like a wrestling knee pad is like a lifter's um, knee sleeves, mm -hmm. but just times a million, right? Because we're talking about like sweating in them for like a full two and a half hour practice where you would usually lose, you know, because you would actually track it. You, you'd often lose four or five pounds of practice of sweat, right? Yeah. It's not like, yeah, I'll go hit a triple, wait for seven minutes. Like wrestling knee pads, just from the sheer volume of use and the magnitude of sweat, and the wrestling itself is not the most hygienic sport, and mm -hmm. that's an understatement. Wrestling knee pads are absolutely disgusting. Uh, the second thing that came to mind was a football locker room after a rainy practice, and I'm, I'm sure you've been there. Uh, all it takes is like two kids to not bring their stuff home and leave it in their locker, and the entire locker room is rancid. Yeah, so I... Mm. I don't know how general locker room hygiene worked at your school, but for, for us, the football locker rooms would just smell progressively worse throughout the entire season. Yeah. Because we would take our, our practice jersey and practice pants home, and, you know, it, it was our responsibility to wash them. Most most of the, the players were, were pretty responsible about that. But it was on the school to wash the shoulder pads. And, you know, like sweat, seeps into the shoulder pads yeah. like there's, there's there's a lot of like soft foam material padding. Yeah. yeah and um they did that once a season yeah same yeah, yeah. so you, you would just have 
mustier and mustier shoulder pads, you know, with a pair hanging one in every locker. And we had, we had like between JV and varsity, we probably had 130 kids playing football. Yeah. So within an enclosed, pretty poorly ventilated space, you've got six month old ripening, uh, shoulder pads. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, the the smell might vary a little bit day to day, but there was there was a clear overall linear trend of just the locker room getting more and more rancid as this as the season progressed. Yeah, I, I view it as you know, it, it's like watching you know, th- there's just those spikes. You know, there, there's the upward trajectory, but man, when you walk in just after a rainy practice, to me that's just the worst. And the third thing that came to mind for me was uh, a protein shaker that's been left in a hot car. Mm-hmm. That That's, to me, about as bad as it gets for smells. And that's why, you know, I was a meathead at the age of 12. So by the time I was 17, my entire life was just wrestling knee pads and football locker rooms and protein shakers. So at the age of 17, at that point, I had already mostly lost my sense of smell mm-hmm. um, just from like allergies and deviated septums and the whole deal and it was for the best like smell is not something i need in my life now here's the big question for you how did you how did you combat all of those bad smells that were circling around you at 17 years old did you shower all the time or were you an axe body spray guy no 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 i i i showered okay yeah that's good there's a nice mechanism built in um (laughs) for if you're a wrestler and you decide, oh, I don't like to shower very often, like you're just going to get innumerable skin diseases. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, with wrestling, it's like it, it's in everyone's best interest to just shower regularly. Uh, so so I, I picked up that habit from wrestling, and yeah, the the Axe body spray stuff you can get by in like gym class or like you know football maybe, even though that's a terrible idea. But with wrestling, it's like you're. You're you're going to have harm done to you if you don't shower yeah, enough. Yeah. Uh so for me, um probably the worst thing I've ever smelled is cat diarrhea. And, you know, sorry sorry to just come out of the gate with that. Yeah. Uh but man, like all cat excrement is just absolutely disgusting. Um and like like cat cat poop itself is bad enough but when they get a stomach bug it's it's uh i i don't even want to think about it i'm gonna move on from that that's let's do that i like to when i think of cats i think a little izzy and our our noontime cuddle routine that we have and that's my image of cats and we will move forward yeah that's that's better uh so probably the second worst thing i've ever smelled is uh our our refrigerator died recently um and so there were like like you know things that were previously refrigerated became no longer refrigerated got up to room temp uh we had to throw a lot of stuff out uh you know a, a lot of it hadn't actually gone bad but it's like oh well this was room temp for like two like two days or something nah, i don't i don't know if this is completely safe to eat anymore but there was one thing that was very much not safe to eat, and that was uh, some cheese sauce that I'd made like three months prior. It just got wedged in the back of the fridge. I completely forgot about it. Yeah. I mean, it was very rotten. It was like growing mold. Oh, God. And and the thing is, like, I've, I've, ha- 
I've had that situation occur before, but like uh like temperature temperature affects like gas dispersion in general. Um so like colder things just inherently don't have as strong of a smell as hotter things because there's like less kinetic energy in the gas molecules, so like fewer of them are are coming up and, and hitting you in the nose really hard. Um but no, like this this had gotten to room temp and so I was met with with the full force of the of just this completely rotten cheese sauce as I was cleaning out stuff in the fridge, and uh, yeah, it was it was truly rancid. Yeah, um, like I so I'm I think I mentioned this on the podcast before. I know you know this about me. I'm very sensitive to bad smells or just smells in general. Um, like if I'm in an enclosed space, like even like a car with someone who's wearing way too much perfume or cologne, like. I will occasionally just black out like, or, or even just an air freshener. If someone, wait, 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 wait. So, if someone has a new, a new air freshener in the car, I have to roll the window down and like hang my nose out the window like a dog. So when you say blackout, you mean like you'll lose consciousness yeah. or you'll be, you'll, it's like a drinking blackout where you're no, like, no, no. whoa, what happened last night? Like I, I will lose, I will experience syncope. Wow. Um, so yeah, like I and and that also applies to really bad smells. Like I, uh, like I I can't remember the last time I threw up from being sick. Like it's it's been a long time, but I will just like gag and sometimes just vomit if I smell something that smells bad enough. Um, so I I'm actually taking this question itself as a personal assault by Corinne. Uh, attempt, like make, making me relive uh, some some of the darkest moments of my life wow. and also uh, forcing me to consider some of what would have been the darkest moments in my life uh, from your life. So, yeah, just, uh, you know, I, I expect more from our listeners, but this time Corinne just just let us down. Yeah. So what's next here? Uh, Dan McGowan asks, what are some organizational habits that you employ to improve, uh, that, that improve your work, learning, or life? So I like this because it represents the duality of our show. Uh, yeah. we, we start out with a question about cooking and I'm like, forget all that. You don't need cooking. Cooking is irrelevant. Get it out of your life. Now the tables have turned when it comes to organization and efficiency. That's my sweet spot. Uh, Greg has a different approach, <laughs> but so for me personally, I'm going to talk a little bit about, uh, organizing the space and kind of the operations, day to day. So first of all, I'm extremely averse to clutter. And I think a lot of people might be a little bit surprised by that. Maybe I'm not sure. I'm not like, a, I'm not really into cleaning. Like I don't like scrub everything. So everything's like spotless. But I don't like stuff being all over my desk. I don't like things being out of place. I, I try to keep surfaces largely open. Like I don't like stuff sitting around everywhere. So no clutter for me is a really helpful strategy for, first of all, not losing stuff, but also maintaining efficiency and keeping focus when working. Um, one habit that I try to employ uh, with work and learning is the concept of deep work. Um, I'm not, I don't look into the academic literature in this area. So this is all just kind of, you know, when you listen to a podcast about something and you're like, I'm not going to interrogate these ideas super closely. I'll take what's useful and leave the rest. Right. Uh, but, but I've heard some podcasts with Cal Newport, who's talked a lot about the concept of deep work. 
Uh, and it's mostly focusing on the uh, potential downsides of failing to have kind of a single-minded focus on a particular object at a given moment, right? So uh, an example would be you're at work, you're supposed to be writing an article, but you're checking in on an email thread, you know, every few minutes. Um, you have uh, a Slack channel that you're kind of chatting with in, in an asynchronous ma matter. You've got people stopping by your desk every every 20 minutes or so to, to drop in. It's really difficult to kind of shift your focus away and dig back in with a, a sufficient level of depth and nuance. You have to really kind of uh, immerse yourself into that material to do that deep work and distractions really oppose that. So I take deep work really seriously and to the extent that it's responsible, I try to block out certain periods of time specifically for writing uh, or statistical, like any kind of number crunching where I turn off chat apps, I leave my phone in, in a different room, no notifications whatsoever. Sometimes I'll even put a sign on, on the door to my office and just say, <laughs> absolutely not. Yeah. Um, so I think deep work is really important and setting up your work, uh, you know, your, your workflows so that you have some opportunities to have that deep work. Uh, for me, at least that's important. Another thing is I, I like to really invest a lot of time and effort on the front end if there's some task that I'm going to be doing repeatedly, uh, especially if it's going to be really central in terms of importance, I really like to create efficient systems on the front end rather than patching things together as I go. Uh, I know some people like to just go with the flow, use their momentum and enthusiasm and dive right in and say, we'll work out the, the details later. I'm very different. I, I like to start by saying, okay, if we're going to do this at a large scale and we're going to do it efficiently and effectively, what does that actually look like in a way that is sustainable and repeatable? Because sustainable and repeatable prevents burnout and prevents issues with quality control. You know, if you're um, if, if the process isn't repeatable in an in efficient way, much greater likelihood that errors are going to find their way in uh, or just fluctuations in quality, in my opinion. Uh, and then along those lines, uh, I like to really focus on using, I think it's really important with any kind of, when it comes to your work habits and work processes, uh, it's really important to think through like, what is the right way to, to achieve each particular function, right? So like one of the biggest things in a workplace that you have to think about is what necessitates an in-person meeting, what should be done totally independently with no distraction what should be done in an asynchronous manner where you have an email thread or like a, some kind of a Trello or Slack type of, of software. Uh, I think it's really important to figure out what kinds of communications are most suitable for what medium and application. Uh, so I, I try to make sure that as much as possible, I am revisiting that as I go. So if I notice that I'm like, okay, we're doing email shit that should not be email. This has no business being email this has to be done a different way. I'm very eager to readdress that as we're going rather than say, well, it's how we've always done it. Done it. Let's stick with it. Yeah. You know? So I do think it's valuable. Uh, not everyone has a, a tremendous amount of autonomy in terms of how they schedule their work and how they organize their workday. But if you do have autonomy, I, I think it can be really helpful to be open-minded to exploring different ways of doing things. Um, and, and I actually in, in the past have leaned on others a lot if I'm about to do something new. Um, so like for, you know, hypothetical, if you're about to get into podcasting, it's good to reach out to a few people who have done it for a while and say like, 
if you were starting today, what, what major mistakes would you have avoided? Right. So like, if you go back and start over, help me see the stuff I'm not seeing, you know, same thing when we were really ramping up our coaching program, reached out to folks who have been doing it for a while. Um, so yeah, I, I just think it's to the extent that you have the autonomy there, it's really important to to use that autonomy effectively and uh, and to lean on others for advice when you can. Nice, yeah. Uh, so I I take a very different approach. Um, I, I would say that I am chaos personified, uh, and that is I, I think it's just a characteristic of who I am. And quite frankly, it's how I like it. Um, when when things are too organized and structured, I feel uh, extremely overwhelmed. So like if, uh, like all day yesterday, I was, I was dreading today. Uh, and the reason for that is there were two discrete time blocks on my schedule for the day that had things scheduled. So, (laughs) you know, 14, when not that much, like 12 hours of my day, I could, you know, do, do with my time what I wanted uh, but there were, you know, like two hours here, there were like five hours of the day were, were pre-scheduled. I was just like, Jesus Christ, what am I going to do? Like, I'm not going to get anything done because yeah. there are these two huge chunks of time that like, <laughs> what, what the fuck am I even going to do? Um, like you, you were mentioning, uh, deep work. Yeah. I, I, could not for my personal uh circumstances i could not disagree with that more strongly yeah so um that that is how my teachers told me like oh that's how you're supposed to do homework and whatnot that's how my parents like made me do homework and that is how i attempted to work for probably the first six years that i was that i was doing things and what i would find is that and, and like th- this was even before um like th- this was even before like social media so you can't say like oh like you just had your attention span ruined by social media like i i basically was never on the computer i i had i did there was nothing to distract me but i just could never focus on anything for very long so you know i i would do like even even as like a kid like early in my career whatever i would do like 10 to 20 minutes of like high quality work. And then just no matter what I was doing, trying to write something, trying to do like math problems, uh, like uh, researching sources for like a term paper I was writing, whatever. Like after like 10 to 20 minutes, like I just couldn't do it anymore. Like whatever it was, I would just stare at it. It went from like making sense and it was something I could focus on to like, you know, this is what my my visual fixation is on, and this is what I'm trying to focus on. But my my brain is going literally anywhere else. Um, and so my work process is I attempt to uh, whatever I need to focus on, I have it in a standalone window. So like I can I can show this to the camera right now for the YouTube audience. Like the the outline for this episode is the only thing pulled up for me. Uh, so there's nothing to distract me now, but I always have distractions within arm's reach. So I have everything else that I might want to do to distract myself in another window that I can access at any time. And that is tremendous for me. So what I can do is for about 15 minutes, 
I can really focus on whatever I'm doing, get a, get a surprising amount done in that time period, and then just go distract myself with something for like two or three minutes and then come back to whatever it was. Um, like that, I think the research and whatever else, all of the experts say that's not how you should do it. But, uh, like I, I finally, I think fully embraced that about myself about two years ago. Yeah. And my productivity has never been better. Like that's, that's been huge for me, which I guess is, is kind of an organizational system, uh, in a way, but yeah, but, but I think that's important, though, that, you know, to draw on an analogy, we, you know, we always talk about these research studies with a training program. We say, OK, overall, you know, if we look at this meta analysis with 360 different people spread across, you know, X number of studies, we can say that for the average person, generally speaking, approach A is a, a little bit better than approach B, right? Mm -hmm. But within that, there's inter-individual differences where some people, it, it's the complete opposite, and they actually made better progress with, with the other program, right? Mm -hmm. And so I, I think it would be silly to assume that every single person has to approach work the same way and says, oh, no, I, I heard on a podcast that actually the thing that's been working for me for two years is not the best way. Yeah. You know, it's important to try different things, but if you have the empirical data that says, Every time, every time you try the thing that's supposed to work, it gets worse. Then at a certain point, you have to let it go. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, so just, just in general, I find that if my life, if my life has too much structure, I just, I just feel on a really deep level, like I'm being suffocated. Yeah. Uh, so what I do is I do develop systems for things that are very important uh, and things that like absolutely can't slip through the cracks that I would have either either a reasonably high chance of feeling overwhelmed because I would feel like oh no there's so much I need to do um but like I don't ha and like I, I'm just gonna have to keep going over and over my to-do list in my head to make sure I don't forget anything for things like that you know like most uh like the most standard organizational tip possible just make to-do lists like that's that's been really helpful for clearing more things out of my head so that I can just more cleanly bat bounce back and forth between work and distractions without being like, oh no, what's the next work task I need to do? Uh then kind of for my next block of focus. Um so to-do lists have been big. Uh meal prepping has been really big. Um like just you know that that is one thing on my week or like one thing on my schedule every week, like big block of time, need to get this done. Um, but then it, it alleviates the concern of trying to figure out what I'm going to eat, uh, for an entire week. So like big payoff there. Um, and then things that like I need to do on like a weekly basis or a monthly basis, uh, just so I don't have to remember all of that stuff. I use uh, boomerang for Gmail. Um, like I, I'm really bad about checking my, my Google calendar. And I think the reason for that is is like i mentioned before if i look at my calendar and see like three things on it i'm like oh no for the week well for the, for the week it's like four things okay if there's three things in a day though i'm just writing that day off like it's yeah. already ruined so I, uh, I don't want to derail you too much but how did you survive doing a study with human subjects 
Because like uh, that, that is constant scheduling and blocking off windows and things like that. Right. So as as someone who lives in the chaos, I'm I'm just pretty good at doing that. Um, like my my main org- organizational tool is just my email inbox. Yeah. And if there's any any to do tasks associated with an email, like I'll I'll just mark it as unread. So, you know, I, I know, like, just from looking at my inbox, like, oh, there, there are 25 emails marked as unread, including ones I've already responded to. Like, those are things that just uh, at the start of my workday, just look back and be like, okay, okay, like, here's what I need to do uh, in each slot of time. And I mean, like, I did have to put that stuff on a calendar, like the lab calendars just for, like, scheduling space to do stuff. Uh, but then I, w- I would never look at the lab calendars. I'd be like, no, I, I, I have to use my own system because brother looking at the lab calendars and just seeing, <laughs> yeah. just seeing every minute of every day blocked off for the foreseeable future in 11 different colors. Yeah, it would. Or, yeah. I would just look at that and get a cold sweat. Yeah. Uh, like it, it, t- it took me a week of grad school before realizing like I could never do academia. Fuck that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I use uh, I use Boomerang to give myself email reminders. So th- so things that I don't have to do at a particular time, but I do have to do on a per- particular day. Um, like my my main organizational system is just like what is still sitting in my Gmail inbox, and so just having like automatic emails set up and scheduled that send to me at six a.m. in the morning, saying like, hey, at some point today you need to do this. Um, That's smart. I like that. Thank you. Uh, so yeah, th- things that I have to do on a particular day or or on a particular day of the month, that's that's my organizational system for that. You know, I, I do something like that, to be honest. Uh, you know, it's funny because I'll have the Google Calendar mm-hmm. that I could easily look at and should, but I will find the invite that I got for that meeting and leave it unread yeah. until the meeting occurs because every time I check my email, it's like, remember, you got that thing on Thursday. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I do some of that already. Uh, but yeah, you, boomerang sounds good. You should give boomerang a shot because the the so what you're describing is also what I used to do, but just kind of by by necessity, like things that are higher up in your inbox are things that that you kind of focus on more. Like if there's a to do task associated with an email that's now like a month old, like you've looked at that email every day for the past month and you haven't had to do the thing associated with it yet. Yeah, and so it, at least I find it's easier for that to just kind of like become a part of the scenery and and you're not really looking at that subject line anymore. Yeah. Um so by when when something becomes scheduled, I'll just like schedule uh an email in boomerang to send to myself on the day that I actually have to do the thing. And then I can clear the notification out of my inbox uh and and get a get a fresh one like when I when I actually have to do it. Yeah. It's 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 been pretty clutch. Nice. All right. Uh, I was thinking we might skip ahead. We, we have a few things that are kind of just like uh, efficiency work related. Mm-hmm. I wonder if, how do you feel about skipping ahead to the one about the loneliness epidemic? Yeah, let's do it. Getting into some bigger topics here. Do you do you want to lead off on this one? Sure. Yeah. So uh, Pleasant Merit Pawn. I, I can read you in. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, so from uh, the subreddit, Pleasant Merit Pawn. Uh, says, what are your thoughts about the loneliness epidemic? The apparent phenomenon of people today having fewer close friends and feeling more lonely than in the past. Uh, what are potential causes, impacts, and fixes? 
Yeah. So this is something that we've talked about just like in social settings when we're hanging out. Um, and, and so I know that we kind of agree on, on a kind of a, a major causative factor there. So I'm stealing your thunder a little bit cause you put it in the out, the outline first, but, um, you know, one thing that seems to be a, a trend in American culture, like that's the only culture I can speak about with experience. Uh, but in American culture, things have generally become more secularized in, over the last several decades. Um, you know, there are fewer people who are involved in church groups and who kind of seek uh, kind of a default community of people within their you know, whatever religious group they happen to find themselves in. For a lot of people, that was where you find a sense of community. And if you need someone to, you know, watch your kids or help you out around the house, whatever the case may be, you would go to to some type of uh, religious group or congregation and, and have a community there. And, you know, another thing that that seems to be happening more and more in recent decades is there's a lot more mobility um, and a lot of people move around from city to city you you don't find as many situations of course they still exist but you know you don't find a lot of situations where three generations of your family knows three generations of multiple families on your street right mm -hmm. where all of your neighbors you know their grandparents say hi to your kids and everybody knows everybody as people move around more you know i i feel like a lot of that becomes at least for me like, I, I don't have a close relationship with a lot of my neighbors because I bounced around a lot. I mean, I, in the last decade, I don't even know how many times I moved from apartment to apartment and eventually into a house. Um, so it seems that as people are moving around more, they're, they're kind of, by default, you have to kind of reestablish a community and a network every time you do that. And you can stay in touch with folks, but it, it's not quite the same. Uh, and as people, have, as American culture and society has kind of trended more uh, secular in nature, we don't have those default kind of religious congregations to lean on for, for some of those community purposes. And I was also, um, I was listening to a pod, I, I like the Ezra Klein podcast a lot, and they're talking a little bit about the evolving workplace uh, intra and post-COVID and how uh, it kind of exposed the fact that a lot of folks were really leaning on the workplace to provide them with meaningful relationships. Mm -hmm. A lot of people would kind of, because work in America has kind of taken over larger and larger portions of our day, uh, especially with remote work where you're kind of like constantly tapping away all hours of the day. Some people kind of graze on their work rather than crunching it into a discrete time window. Work has just kind of taken over larger portions of our day. A lot of folks have as they've gone away from kind of religious congregations and institutions, they've and they're more mobile, moving every few years, they've leaned more on their workplace, it seems, to kind of bring them meaningful relationships with peers. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think COVID, when a lot of office buildings shut down and they said, okay, you're on your own, a lot of people really noticed how much they were leaning on their workplace to provide social interaction that, that was, you know, not you know, specifically work related. Uh, so I think there's a lot of factors going into what could be causing that, that increased sense of loneliness in a lot of folks. Mm -hmm. And the, the question asked a little bit about potential fixes. And I don't know if I have a lot of great advice here because like, you know, I, I'm pretty introverted and 
my requirement for social interaction is pretty low relative to most others. Mm -hmm. And it always makes you sound like an asshole when you say that, because it's like, well, I like me more than everyone else. So everybody, everyone leave me alone. That's, that's not the case. It's just like, if you're really introverted, you enjoy having meaningful connections and interactions with people, but you just kind of feel like it drains your energy level. Like you have to really be up and energetic and you just have a finite amount of that where you say, I, I love interacting with everyone in this room, but my, my battery's drained. I need to go recharge a little bit. And so for me, uh, my requirement for socializing is relatively low. I like to do it, but it, you know, in small amounts and, and I kind of have to recharge between. But one thing that has helped me, because even I need some you know, social interaction, I found that it can be really beneficial to just go and do a thing that kind of forces you to engage with people who share some overlapping interest, mm -hmm. you know? So like one of the first things I did in grad school was I started coaching a special Olympics powerlifting team. And I was like, listen, I don't know how to make friends. I'm too awkward and introverted for that. And who's got the time anyway. But if I show up to this thing, I feel like there's a, a good chance I'm going to interact with someone that I really get along with, you mm -hmm. know? And I ended up meeting a, a guy named Dick Landerman, uh, who I coached with for like six years. Uh, and, and I, you know, he's like a grandfather to me. You know, he, he's a really fantastic guy. He's, he, the things he's done in his life are absolutely incredible, a really phenomenal guy. But like, he's one of my, my, the first people that when I moved to, to this area, I was like, Hey, I, I have a friend in the community. Now he was like <laughs> probably four or five decades older than me. <laughs> But um, but still, I mean, that, that's a meaningful connection and almost like a family type bond that, that we form there. Uh, and so, like, I, I think that getting into some kind of hobby, activity, volunteer task, religious group, anything that kind of forces you into those 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 opportunities for interaction, mm -hmm. I, I think that can be a helpful thing. Yeah, I, I agree with with virtually all of that. Um, yeah, th this is a conversation we we've definitely had off mic before. Um, so I don't have that much more to add, but I, I do have a few, uh, I, I don't know, a, a few, a few thoughts to maybe just like drill down into some of these things a little more. Um, so you, you mentioned that, uh, people just move around a lot more than they used to. It's, it's rare that like you, your parents, your grandparents, your great grandparents, you know, back five generations, all we're all born and lived in like one small town. Um, and I, I very much think that's true. And I think that it kind of reflects. So I, I think there's a bit of like a rural urban split there. Yeah. Um, like I, I think that the, and, th and this could run totally counter to the data, but th this has been just kind of like my general observation where it seems like the, the common stereotype is that like rural families are the ones that are like really tight knit like the kids the kids stay there like ah, whatever and but I, I think i think more and more it's actually becoming the opposite where like the like i i think people who have only ever lived in cities or suburbs um underestimate the the poverty and just like general desolation of of not certainly not all but like a lot of of rural america um and like yeah when so when uh when like the opioid crisis kicked off uh and and people were talking about deaths of despair 
um I, I saw a lot of people being like oh like this this is terrible like how is this happening this is completely out of the blue and like as someone who who grew up in a uh not particularly wealthy small town i was like yeah yeah that checks out <laughs> like yeah. a, a lot of the people who who i grew up around like if if they could get oxys on demand to just kind of like deal with their lives like yeah i, I think they probably would have um but so like there there are dynamics in play there so with with like rural communities used to just be like family farms or like a relatively uh, like like relatively small farms that like people could work on for generations or maybe just like one family member would have a farm but like all of the the kids and like cousins and nephews and whatever would like go help them out with it um but like we're seeing uh we're seeing like more and more concentration of farming like fewer small farms more just like huge corporate farms that just don't need as many people to work on them anymore um so like that kind of anchor for for social stability in rural places is is decreasing um and also like a, a fair number of rural places there used to just be kind of a business that the community was built around like a factory a mine whatever and uh, like with, with especially factory jobs um like post post nafta a lot of those jobs have gone overseas and so you know, p people are like, ah, oh, man, like th this community was just so much better 30 years ago. And now like everything's kind of dying, like poverty's increasing. It's like, well, there, there's no capital inflows to this community anymore. <laughs> like there's <laughs> there, there's ultimately no big employer like paying people and giving them money to like go spend and like do other stuff in the community. So yeah, like there, there, there are no jobs anymore. So like, of course, things are, are kind of getting shittier. And so I, I think that, um, like a lot of the people I know who, who grew up in cities or suburbs where they're like, they're, they're certainly not every city, but like most cities kind of tend to have more job openings and just more opportunities. And so you at least have the option there to, to do something and also still be able to live with your family. Some of the friends you grew up with, uh, stay in an, in an area where you can be around those people you have deeper social bonds with but for for a lot of people who grew up in in rural places you're you're basically forced to make the choice of like do i want to live in intense poverty my entire life or uh like leave my family looking for opportunities yeah and like i i don't think that decision comes easy for most people um like i i think they would often like to be closer to family but it's uh you know given like given the post nafta economic conditions like it's it's just not really like feasible so um yeah i i, I think that uh the the loneliness epidemic like i i think it kind of affects everyone but at least at least my perception is it uh maybe hits rural americans a, a little bit harder yeah um Another thing that I think uh, probably plays a role is that uh, like there there are just like more private entertainment options than there used to be. So yeah. you know there there's an infinite amount of television, like podcasts, YouTube videos, whatever. And it's great. I mean, you should be listening to definitely this podcast and watching these YouTube videos for sure. Absolutely. Um, but like there there has been kind of a a 
breakdown of monoculture and and more things that you can do alone. So talking to like grandparents, like great aunts, great uncles, um, like I, I remember as a kid just being like, like, what, what did you do when you were growing up? And uh, like things that were way more common was like, you know, there's not a TV in the house. You want to do something like you're going to play games as a family or something, or you're, you're just going to invite like other families from the neighborhood over and just like play board games together. Cause you know, you, you got five hours in the evening to kill. What are you going to do? Like, it's, it's either like you have to do like there were books certainly, but like for the most part, if, if you wanted to entertain yourself that tended to require other people, or it's just like, ah, oh, man, I, I got all day to kill on a Saturday. What am I going to do? Um, ah, let's just let's just walk down to the town square, just kind of sit on a bench. And, uh, sh- you know, people I know are going to walk by, strike, strike up a conversation, see where the day goes. Um, and I, I just don't think there's nearly as much of that anymore, because I, I think like in the, the immediate, uh, you know, there there very well may be like plenty of other things you would rather do. Like there's probably something on Netflix that you would rather watch than, you know, go to the town square, sit on a bench and hope someone, you know, walks by, but you know, we're, we're less bored than we used to be. And there, there are more just like private entertainment options, um, which kind of pulls us into ourselves, uh, and, you know, gives less incentive to kind of put yourself out there and, and try to make friends. Um, so like maybe it's good for you in the short term, but like maybe, maybe not the best in the long term. And then, uh, I mentioned like the breakdown of the monoculture. Um, so also talking like not so much to grandparents, but more like people from, from my parents' generation who grew up when there were, you know, like four TV channels, uh, like any show that was popular was like, like basically everyone watched it or like 40% of people watched it or something. And so, you know, like a, a big social thing in America still is Super Bowl parties because whether or not you care about football, like you probably know enough people who do that you're, you're going to get invited to a Super Bowl party. Like that's, that's pretty common. Um, but you know, it, it used to be that, that something like mash was like that as well, where yeah. you, you might just have friends that, you just go watch MASH with them every week. And, like, uh, we do that in our friend group. So, like, Game of Thrones stuff, Westworld, which has just become an absolute disaster. But it's yeah. it's it's our <laughs> filth. It's still fun to consume with people. Um, like, that that's something that, that we can do that's, that's social and it's fun. Um, but, you know, there's... I, I, I wouldn't want to guess what percentage of Americans watch Westworld. It's, it's definitely less than 1%. Um, yeah. And so, you know, that's that's one with, with the breakdown of the monoculture, there's uh, fewer things that, you know, will be firm conversation topics with strangers. Uh, like if, if you were to meet a new a new person, because like it, it, there used to be a higher probability that if you struck up a conversation with someone, you could be very confident and you'd have at least one shared interest or like shared cultural touchstone. And that's much less common now uh and also like you know there there were just more things that just kind of like more entertainment options that kind of gave you an excuse to have friends over watch it together have have a little uh like a a, a little bit of a get together um so yeah like i i think all of those things contribute 
And in, in terms of potential fixes, like I, I agree with, with everything you said. Um, I, I think, I think the big thing is it, it used to just be more the case that, um, like you, you still had to put yourself out there to like meet people and make friends, but you were more nudged into situations where that would be easier. Um, and it would kind of more happen just by general osmosis, uh, where now it does, it does take more person, like it, it takes more purposeful effort to intentionally try to meet people and become friends with them. Um, like, like I, like speaking for myself, I, I've got a, a pretty decent friend group now, but like I, I was, I was lonely as hell. Like my first <laughs> probably five years out of college for a lot of these reasons, moving around all the time, um, didn't really get plugged into social things when we move places. Cause it's like, ah, we'll probably be gone in six months anyway. Kind of what's the point. Um, and like, yeah, uh, it, it sucked. Yeah. <laughs> and so like w- one of the reasons we, we wanted to settle down. Um, so like w- when we moved to Raleigh, uh, and then like a, a year or two later, I was looking at grad school. One of the things that sold me on UNC was just like, it's pretty close to Raleigh. So we can keep hanging out with some of the same people, keep doing some of the things that that we were previously doing, like going to trivia every week and like hanging out with our trivia team. Um, and then, you know, certainly just like moving back to Raleigh after after grad school, just just because like by that point, I had put in a fair bit of effort into starting to build a friend group. Yeah. And it's just like, yeah, I know how fucking bad I felt before I had that. And if if we go somewhere else for grad school or, or move somewhere else after grad school other than Raleigh and back to our friends, like, it's going to suck again. And it's going to be another, like, three, four-year process of, of trying to build a new social circle. Um, but yeah, like, it, it, it didn't happen by osmosis. Like, it, it took uh, a, a pretty reasonable amount of, like, purposeful effort to do it. Um, and I, I think that just used to not be the case quite so much. Yeah. So we've got another one here that I think is really relevant because it ties in pretty well with an article that you recently wrote. Um, So we've got a question here from Nombringer. Mm -hmm. Uh, Basically wanting to know what is some stuff to do that isn't training for people who are absolutely addicted to training. So the backstory here is it sounds like this individual had a, a pretty serious injury. F- luckily, they, they expect uh, a full recovery. But, um, you know, they mentioned that being unable to train for a while, it kind of feels like there's a big part of their life missing, which is really relatable. You know, we, we get uh, so into training and it becomes such a big part of our life. And then when we're forced to kind of take some time away it can be really really difficult um and so the individual goes on to say i like to dive into things and take them pretty seriously um but anything that i pick up now it's got to be pretty temporary in nature because eventually i'll be back into my training pretty hard and won't have time for this so it, it brings up an interesting question of what do you do? You know, some people even struggle on just days off of training, mm-hmm. right? Where it's like, oh my God, I have to take two days out of the gym every week. How am I going to fill those two days? Right. And then for some people, it's longer things where they're like, okay, I can't really train for eight weeks. What can I do to kind of fill that gap? And this, this, um, I, I mentioned the relevance here because you recently wrote an article for mass 
which was cross-published on strongerbyscience.com. And it was all about the more focused stuff of when you when you take a layoff or take some time out of the gym, how quickly does detraining occur? How severe is it? How quickly can you build back up? So it focused more on the in-the-gym aspects of detraining and returning to training. But this is focusing more on the stuff outside of the gym, uh, just kind of filling that void. So, so do you have any advice for them? Yeah, so I, I've got a a kind of fun recommendation and a super practical recommendation. Uh, and I, I think, I think both, I, I think one or the other will, will appeal to this individual, um, depending on what they most enjoyed about training. So they, they, they mentioned in the question, um, that they, they have to be immobilized. So, you know, one consideration is, Hey, if the thing you like about training is just kind of like moving around, getting your heart rate up, getting a sweat on, feeling like you're, you're bettering yourself physically. Um, you know, if, if you have like an upper body injury, you can still like go for a walk, do, do lower body exercise, whatever. But if, if you're like fully immobilized, uh, like based on the way this question's worded, I assume that that's off the table. So one of the other things that people get from training that kind of like meets meets a psychological need for them is just kind of the uh, the feeling of accomplishment of of mastery and feeling like you're you're progressing at something, uh, picking up new skills, improving in, at something that that matters to you. And so, um, if if those are the sorts of of itches that training scratches for you, uh, you could just look around for new skills to acquire that might be useful for you um, that you can you can do in bed while immobilized. So, uh, for example, you could attempt to, like, you know, over, over the span of rehab, like, you're, you're never going to become, like, fluent in a new language. But, you know, if you maybe have an idea, like, ah, I'd kind of like to do some international travel in a couple years or something, and you, you might have a destination in mind, you could just like really intensively try to get, you know, probably not even conversational, but like learn learn enough of the language that you'll be able to communicate with people, get around better. Um, and, you know, so you'll you'll you should be able to tangibly improve at those language skills pretty quickly that that might feel good to you. Um, or it could be something like picking up uh, some sort of skill, like something you can do with your hands that you maybe don't have to do all the time, but is, is sort of the type of skill where it's like riding a bike, like you pick it up and you never really forget it. So, you know, you could maybe learn how to like knit or sew, which, uh, seems ridiculous, but I, I learned how to sew when I had like a, an MCL injury when I was younger and I'm not going to pretend like I sew all the time, but I'd say once every other year or so, um, a situation comes up where it's, where it's useful to have that skill, uh, and I'm glad I learned it. Um, or if if it's not so much that you'd like to to pick up and learn a useful skill, um, but you do you are still very uh, motivated by kind of the pursuit of mastery. Something you could do is just try to pick up and learn a hard video game where like progression will be very obvious. So I know for, for a lot of gamers, like I, I've never played any of like the FromSoft games, like the Dark Souls games, uh, 
uh, Sekiro, Elden Ring, stuff like that. I have no idea what's happening here. I, I've never... It's totally fine. Yeah. Uh, but they're, they're notoriously difficult video games. Okay. And the, the way that I hear gamers talk about them and the sense of accomplishment they get when they beat a boss that had previously beat them like 50 times. Like the, so the, the thing people like about those games is they're, they're very hard. But as I understand it, for the most part, they're fair. Like, you might yeah. just get killed in just kind of traversing between areas because an enemy falls out of the sky and stabs you in the back. Like, that, that's kind of a bullshit death. Yeah. But in terms of the boss fights, which people say are the hardest parts of the game, apparently the boss fights are very fair. Like, the bosses have a fixed number of attacks they do, and it's, it's the sort of thing where if, if you are good enough at the game they they won't just kill you with bullshit like it, it's always yeah. beatable and it's just a matter of player skill um and yeah so when when i hear people talk about those games it sounds the sorts of words they use and emotional language they use sounds a lot like the sense of accomplishment lifters describe when they hit prs yeah um so you know for just like scratching an itch kind of in the short term just just picking up a, a hard video game and trying to get good uh, might be uh, pr- pretty motivating. You know, I, I know a lot of people like to take a dig at like the the emergence of esports and kind of really competitive video gaming um, just because it's kind of a newer thing. And I think uh, people stigmatized video games back in the day as being like, well, if you're playing video games, you're wasting your time, right? You're, you're not doing something productive for society. But like... When you think about it, you know, you mentioned when, when they talk about, uh, you know, I- experiencing that that personal best, it, it does sound reminiscent of other elements of achievement and more traditional, um, you know, sports or endeavors. And it's basically the same, right? Like <laughs> you being a good power lifter is no better for society than someone doing better at a video game than they used to. And at the end of the day, it's all like, okay, we're going to agree on a set of constraints we're going to agree what achievement is everybody have at it you know mm-hmm. and within that context like it's very understandable why why someone would feel a similar sense of accomplishment from that yeah um yeah so i i really focused on the fact that this um this listener mentioned they like to dive into things and take them pretty seriously uh and I definitely relate to that. I will admit it's something that I'm trying to get away from a little bit. I, I think I, I do have a a habit that is just kind of built into my code where I'm I'm really focused on achievement and competition and things like that. I think it'd be better if I could be a little bit less focused on goal striving and a little bit more focused on just kind of enjoying the process of things rather than the outcome exclusively. But nonetheless, um I think something that that really draws me to certain endeavors that busy my mind are things that I can compete in um, just because it's kind of a constant sense of feedback. And you it's it's easier to get that sense of mastery when there's objective empirical data and you say, well, I used to do this well, but now I do that well. Right. Mm-hmm. And you can watch that progress and say, well, I used to place around sixth or seventh at these competitions. Now I'm top three. Right. You, you can mm-hmm. watch that progress. Uh, so something that enables competition and, you know, even if you're not, um, you know, like you said, if it's, if it's a really rough injury and you're totally immobilized, I mean, video games, getting into like 
chess and, and other types of interactive online games where you can compete against others and, and try to really enhance your skill set. You know, that, that would be one way to do it. Also, just things that yield an observable outcome, right? So making a piece of art, building a useful thing, doing a big project around the house that you've been meaning to do for years. I think those things can, can be really, uh, really fulfilling, you know? So like, you know, maybe there is some set of circumstances where I might say, you know what, I'm going to get into cooking and become a very good chef. Uh, I think you would like it if you, if you got into it. I think if, if I could somehow do it without needing to wash so many dishes, I really think that that is, you've got a girlfriend. I know, but I mean, I'm, I'm the one with professional dishwashing experience. Yeah. I'm a professional. Also, that was a joke, by the way. Yeah. You, that was a joke. You've been canceled. No, uh, usually, uh, that is the biggest constraint for me with cooking mm-hmm. is like you may have noticed, Greg, almost every meal I've ever made is a one pot dish. Yeah, that's not a that's not a mistake. <laughs> it's not a, a coincidence. I hate doing the dishes uh, probably because I have I mentioned in, in the last episode working in, in uh, the uh, the food industry. Very, very difficult work. I still can vividly remember just being in the back of a restaurant washing the dishes uh the restaurant i worked at every single dish was like gravy and cheese and just the stickiest stuff that if you left it out for 10 minutes it would stick to the plate like concrete yeah you know like super glue so i'm back there with the steel wool just cranking away boiling water you know my hands are uncomfortably hot and just trying to get the crap off these dishes the servers are coming back. Where's all the plates? We're out of plates. And I'm like, there's nothing I can do. Wait, so you, you had to basically like hand wash everything? Effectively. I mean, there there was so many dishes on the menu that had those types of things that would just stick to the plates. That, that you couldn't just go no. in the dish. Ooh, that's the that's automated. Rough. Yeah, the automatic dishwasher, you pull it down and it's, yeah. you know, it was great, but it wasn't that great. It, yeah, you couldn't do that that's stuff. Fair. So, I mean, yeah, I just... Dude, those Ooh. those like industrial dishwashers though are so sick. You should get one. It, it's essentially an autoclave, yeah. and it it washes your dishes in like five minutes. You should get one. I might. I think it would be cool. I honestly might. Yeah. Um. But no. So, yeah. I I like I said, getting into something where you're producing something tangible. Like I think it'd be really cool to get better at building stuff. Um. My girlfriend's mother is so good at building stuff like really excellent woodworking and carpentry skills like you've seen her backyard like everything in her backyard she built right Mm -hmm. like there's like a dock back there and chairs and like just everything um so yeah seeing those types of things seeing someone who's good at cooking make a great dish seeing someone who's great at carpentry build something that's that's really well done uh you you can see how that would give you that same sense of fulfillment and getting back to the question it is the type of thing that you can put on the back burner and pick it back up later, you know, yeah. so you can get back into training and love it. Um, but you could still, you know, say, you know what, maybe on the weekends, I am going to continue doing some of the carpentry stuff, some mm-hmm. of the woodworking. So, yeah, I would just uh, if I were in, in that situation and uh, I have been before, I try to just focus on, you know, some of my biggest uh, writing projects. I've been, I've been I've decided to dive into them when I'm unable to train because you're just like whatever let's make something here you mm-hmm. know so yeah i would focus on that stuff and uh I, I think that answers the question um 
do you, do you want to do one more and and wrap it up up to you yeah is there a good one left here i think so uh a, a good a, a question that invites us to look back on our lives which i think will put a nice a nice final bow on this episode so uh good morning squat from reddit uh asks do you feel you've accomplished all the major life goals you set out for yourself as a kid um yeah so as a kid i wanted to be a pro baseball player uh and i i also wanted to be a weatherman i mm-hmm. wanted to be a meteorologist specifically on a local news channel um you know the weather channel didn't exist back then so when you were when you were the weather person like at local news stations there's kind of a hierarchy of who really calls the shots yeah and the sports person is pretty high up there, but the weather person is like top priority, right? Mm-hmm. So the sports person can be given an update on the teams. The weather the weather person says, no, cut them out. I'm going live. I've got a tornado in the background, right? Yeah. So um, no, I just, I was really interested in meteorology when I was a kid. Um, obviously I fell short of that goal. Uh, if anything, I've, I've lost I, I know less about weather than I did when I was like 11. <laughs> so I went completely the wrong way with that. Uh, and then pro baseball player, uh, I ditched that when I was like 15. I was like in a position where I was like, I'm either going to focus on these like hyper athletic, like wrestling football sports or the skill development associated with high level baseball. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not to take away from the athleticism of baseball players, there are exceptional athletes playing baseball, but there's so much technical skill required in that sport. You do kind of reach a point. Uh, maybe I reached a point because I have a limited skill set. But you you also just don't have good enough vision. That's true. Yeah. Like the 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 typical like twenty tw- if you have twenty twenty vision, you can't hit a curveball right. effectively. Yeah. Like that's uh like pro baseball players have. I forget if it's ten twenty or twenty ten, but it's you know they're they they tend to be like in in the upper like like ninety eighth percentile or above for visual acuity because like yeah. you you need it to pick up on on spin of breaking pitches soon enough out of the pitcher's hand. Yeah, I, I used to be very good at hitting curveballs, but they were also not exceptional curveballs. Yeah, you know, I mean, I yeah, I think it's when- it's, it's not going to drop eighteen inches off the table and still be coming at you at like. 82 miles an hour yeah and and at that level when you're still 15 or 16 you can the the pitchers are not delivering the pitches in a way that's highly repeatable you know you you can just see from the way that the elbow and the wrist are are oriented you're like okay i got a i got a curveball coming yeah like the the fingers are right behind for the four seamer and and you you just like see the whole ball in their hands because they're throwing (laughs) their curveball like like a football basically <laughs> yeah and and before they start their wind up they're just working in the glove yeah. trying to get that curveball grip yeah. yeah it's uh it's it's a bit different for sure but for for me the biggest thing was like i felt like when i was doing my wrestling stuff and trying to build up strength and power it was really substantially benefiting football and vice versa and then baseball when i was working on those skills i was like i don't think this is helping me out much in the other two and i just kind of reached that fork in the road and chose you know and it, again, this is just a personal limitation because there people that are actually good athletes do they just do like a sport every season until they're like 26 and they're like, yeah, I'm, I'm just great. I went to high school with a kid who was he he played Division One football, basketball, and baseball. Right, mm-hmm. dude is a freak athlete. That wasn't me. I needed to differentiate, and so my my pro baseball player dreams were uh, crushed. 
So personally, to, to give a, a piece of unsolicited advice, obviously it's, it's very clear when you talk about childhood goals, but I do think it's important for people to, like goal setting is good, goal striving is good, goal attainment is good. Uh, goals can serve a very valuable purpose in our lives, but it's also important to give yourself an opportunity to adjust your goals as you go. Like there, there are some people who set a goal that's relatively arbitrary and they're like, well, no going back now. Cause if I don't do this, I'm a quitter. And there, you might reach a point in your life where you're like this goal no longer serves the purpose that it did when it was set. Mm-hmm. And it might be better for me to adjust my goal. So obviously it's difficult to say when it's time to cut bait on a goal but I do think it's important to at least like have a pair of scissors, right? Yeah. Like at least keep your eyes open and say, is this goal actually still a productive and valuable thing in my life? Yeah. So, so for me as a kid, I wanted to be a fire truck. Yeah. Um, and I, I feel like I've made just about as much progress towards that goal as, as I could reasonably expect. Um, I, I think I'm certainly redder than the typical person. Um, I'm relatively large. Uh, as far as humans go, I think I have relatively high horsepower, and uh, I know how to use a hose. So, like, you know, I've I've done just about everything I can. Um, and in, until until really extreme body modifications hit the market, uh, I, I would say I haven't accomplished that goal that I set for myself as a kid. But I've uh, I've doggedly pursued it every day up to this point and i i'm pretty proud of how far i've come you know there's one thing that you might be closer than you think so now you've gotten into the audio medium Ooh, i can get a hover round oh well no we do podcasting now which is a, a progression that's yeah. something you didn't used to do so now you 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 are on-air voice talent and that's so true. you could if they continue to crank out these cars movies the cars franchise <sighs> I mean, you could be a fire truck in like Cars 13. That that would be sick. Yeah, so it, um, it might be doable. I I still think fire trucks are very cool. Yeah. Uh anyway, so no, I I didn't meet that goal. But that's fine. Yeah. All right, so let's let's wrap it up. Um as always, if you enjoy the podcast, make sure to uh like, rate, subscribe. If you're listening to this on YouTube, drop a comment down there uh for the algorithm. Um, if you want to keep up to date with the, uh, with the content we put out, uh, including the research briefs we publish every Wednesday, make sure to sign up to our newsletter. The link to do that will be in the show notes. If you, uh, if, if you yourself, maybe you set a goal as a kid that I, you know, I'm, I'm five years old, uh, and I would really like to squat 500 pounds at some point in my life. And now you're in your 20s or 30s and you're still like eh, 350, 400, something like that. And you think, hmm, I think some coaching could help me get there. Uh, And so if a time machine's ever invented, I could go back and tell my five-year-old self, yes, like you will squat 500 in the future. If you think you might need help to get there, uh, we do have coaching uh, and you can find the link to Stronger by Science coaching in the show notes as well. Um... Let's see, if you want uh, high-quality supplements that are already cheap and you want to get them for 5% cheaper yet, go to BulkSupplements.com, use the code SBSPOD at checkout. Uh, If you want even more uh, in-depth scientific 
uh, content related to building muscle, getting stronger, improving body comp, etc. You should check out the Mass Research Review. Eric and I are half of that, along with Eric Helms and Mike Zordos. Uh, Really high quality stuff. Check that out. And uh, finally, if you have nutrition-related goals, um, you're maybe you're currently a a refugee from my fitness pal after they announced their their paywalling barcode scanning, uh, or you know you, you you would just like to uh, see what's out there and see uh, and just check out nutrition tracking apps. Uh, take a peek at Macro Factor. Uh, that is that is the app that uh, we helped design along with our incredibly talented developers Corey and Rebecca. Uh, there's a two-week free trial if if you'd like to uh, take a peek, and a, a link to Macro Factor will be in the show notes as well, or you can just search it on the App Store and Play Store. Uh, I think that about does it for this fireside chat. Hope you enjoyed it. And as I mentioned earlier in the episode, uh, normal, um, you know, the, the standard uh, fitness and nutrition science content uh, will be back next week, and we'll see you then. Thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com slash newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.